to truly build wealth, it's not just about money, right? Building wealth goes so much deeper than that. Becoming wealthy has 100% in my book, nothing to do with money and 100% everything to do with us and our mindsets towards money. Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another amazing epic episode of For the Love of Money. I'm out of my mind excited about today's episode because I get to sit down with Patrice Washington. Now, you've probably already seen her on TV or listened to her podcast. She's known as America's Money Maven. I mean, who better to have on this show than Patrice, right? So before we dive into that, I want to remind you, if you're trying to get your business flowing, if you are trying to absolutely crush it and you're still looking for your tribe, I have just one or two spots left in my elite 2019 mastermind. So depending when you hear this episode, they may be taken, they may not, but go to fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind, fortheloveofmoney.com forward slash mastermind. Check out the details there, hit apply, and you and I'll jump on the phone and talk about your 2019 goals and make sure that you are a perfect fit for those last couple of spots. Again, they might be gone, but you don't know if you don't hit apply. And even if you, even if they are gone, we can always put you on the waiting list for the next opening. All right. So Patrice is everywhere lately, and I'm so excited to have her on. As I said, she's known as America's money maven. You've seen her on NBC and Fox and Huffington Post. She's talked about in Forbes and New York Post, Success Magazine, you name it. She's everywhere. She's one of the world's leading personal wealth coaches. So she's an award-winning author. She is host of the hit show, Redefining Wealth. She's a transformational speaker, and she's about to transform your life, trust me, because this powerhouse woman refers to herself as a hope-restoring coach to women. How cool is that? A hope-restoring coach to women, and that's exactly what she's about to do for you. I can promise you that because her incredible story of comeback and persistence and hope and massive success combined with, quite honestly one of the best sets of practical advice that has ever been given on this show is going to create some real breakthroughs for you over the next 45 minutes. So get ready, listen up, because this episode is absolutely a gift. Patrice, my friend, I'm so glad we finally connected. I know. Long time coming. I'm excited. I know. It's way overdue. Plus, you're the perfect fit ever for the show. So I'm so excited for the listeners. (laughs) So here's the deal. On my show, we always start with rapid fire. It's a fun way for my listeners to get to know you in a hurry. And then if there's something really good that comes up and we want to circle back around and do a deep dive on it, we'll do that. Sound good? That sounds good. All right. I'm starting real easy for you. Where'd you grow up? South Central Los Angeles. And where do you live now? South Pasadena, California. What is your favorite all-time quote? Oh, favorite all-time quote? Um, (laughs) Success... Success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Winston oh my Churchill. God, that is so good. <laughs> what is one of your superpowers? My resilience. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. One of your favorite books? 
T. Harv Ecker, Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. Oh my God, that book saved Lori and I. No joke. We might oh, have to talk about that. me too. Yeah. Saved our butts. Okay, what is one thing you're challenged by right now? One thing I'm challenged by is keeping up with the diet I was on. <laughs> I just finished a hard body challenge and I dropped over 3% body fat Whoa. in about five weeks or so. And the challenge is just continuing to take care of myself and listen to my body with the same you know, precision yeah. in the midst of all the crazy and busy life. Especially so the holidays coming up. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting myself together for that. Congratulations, <laughs> though. That's a big deal. That's really good. Thanks. Favorite speech or favorite advice you've ever given someone? Favorite advice I've ever given someone? I give it every week on my podcast, Chase Purpose, Not Money. Mm, that's so good. I can't wait to talk about your podcast a little bit. Who's someone who's changed your life? My daughter. What is one of your all-time favorite accomplishments thus far? Pivoting to start the podcast. Um, being known as a personal finance expert for so long, it was a challenge to let myself out of the money box and share more of my life with mm -hmm. my audience and my listeners. And um, I'm proud of giving myself permission and how people have received what I have to say. That is really interesting. We're definitely going there. What is one thing you might change from your past? <laughs> I'm going to say the age that I lost my virginity. <laughs> <laughs> First time ever on this show. <laughs> now we all really know each other, guys. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Now nothing's off limits. What is something you've done recently that is generous? Well, that's kind of like an always thing. I love it. Like, Yeah, I mean... We go there a lot on this show. So we'll yeah, give us one as a warm up. Thing. I just actually, about an hour ago, surprised my groomer with a, a tip, a, a massive tip, just because he's been such a blessing and I didn't mm. want to wait until the holidays. So I, I just love that. did it now. I love that. Your dog groomer? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, a good dog groomer is hard to find. It's good yeah. to keep them around. Last rapid fire question. What are you grateful for today? Just being alive, being mm. being alive and in my right mind. You and me both. Okay, so let's get a little bit deeper in the interview now. We're going to circle back around on a couple of those things. But here's where mm -hmm. I want to take you first. I want to take you back to right before the Great Recession that we just had. Mm. You had a seven-figure mortgage brokerage that was just thriving. By the way, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but you and I have a mortgage banking background in common. Oh, no, I didn't realize uh -huh. that. And we also have a huge crash during the recession in common. Mm -hmm. So here you are right before the recession, you're crushing it. You probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably think like you've got everything under control. Oh, yeah. And then the recession shows up and everything goes haywire. Mm -hmm. Take us back there. What was that like? At the time, I realized that we were even, I don't think I realized we were entering uh, the recession. I just know that I was at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Beverly Hills, um, and I had just taken a fall down the stairs, 20 weeks pregnant, and had gone into full-blown labor. And I got to the hospital, and they said, this baby is going to come any minute now, which is devastating. Oh. If you're, uh, you know, anyone who understands pregnancy at 20 weeks, you're barely halfway there, right? Yeah. And I was terrified, but I knew to pray. And I just sat there and laid there and prayed and reached out to some close family and friends and had them start praying. And about two and a half days 
in to being in that emergency room area, they were like, okay, we have to admit you. <laughs> like you have to like go on ahead and get a room. And there I lay for the next 10 weeks um, until my daughter came at 30 weeks. She was still 10 weeks early, but she came at about 30 weeks, Chris. And during that time, I had laid on bed rest watching the news as the banks were closing down left and right. Oh. And my team was calling the hospital um, every few hours, like, can you help me figure this out? Can you help me with this deal? I had it here. They closed. They're not accepting this program. They're not doing this. My client is losing their deposit. It was just absolutely chaotic. And there was one moment when my doctor came in the room and she said, Hey, you know, I wore a belt around my waist. You know, I was being monitored 24 seven. And she said, Hey, I don't know what you're stressing about, but if you don't stop, you're going to leave here two years in a row with no baby. Because the year before I had a son at 24 weeks who died after five hours in my arm. And I made a decision in that moment, Chris, that I had to surrender and just accept whatever happens, happens. But my number one goal right now is to get this child here safely. And I had the maintenance people come in and take the TV off the wall so I could not uh, watch the news and be, you know, worn out or exhausted by that. And my husband brought me an iPod with praise and worship music on it. Mm. And I had my Bible, I had a journal. Um, and that's what I did. I prayed and praised and worshiped for about five more weeks. At that point, I was like midway during my stay there, about five more weeks until my daughter came and she was absolutely healthy. Only spent 21 days in the NICU. I left there with a healthy baby, but also with $400,000 in medical debt. Oh, oh my God. So here is the front end of the recession. Mm-hmm. Here you just went through a traumatizing situation with mm-hmm. your baby girl. Here you just spent how many weeks in the hospital? I spent 10 and 10. then Reagan was there for three weeks. Oh my gosh, 10 weeks in the hospital. And you get out and you have $400,000 in medical debt. And I'm guessing your mortgage brokerage is absolutely collapsing at this point. Is that right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We went from doing you know easily six figures a month to I remember one month if we had made three or four thousand dollars, it was a miracle. What were you thinking? And in I that had moment? like how, how what how, what were you thinking? Like what was next? You know, I still had the audacity to think that I was smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was so used to being the smart one, you know, in my circle that I just tried everything that I could. You know, we would restructure things, or I would try to pull money from one place and. I own some property in New Orleans. I was like, okay, if I just fix these um, and get them rented out, I can sell them, you know, fully occupied investment properties and probably make a few hundred thousand off of that. Little did I know that the market would continue to tank. And by the time I put the last of my money in those, they would not be worth what I thought. Oh um, my gosh. So did you have to so, start over financially, like from scratch? From scratch. From scratch. I literally went from this seven-figure business to about a year after all this started, scraping up change. I remember times when I was checking the couch for loose change and shaking out old purses, looking for hopefully 10 or $20 mm. that I had left stuck somewhere. I had literally emptied all savings. I had 13 pieces of property. My husband and I um, jointly had about 13 pieces of property. I had tenants who weren't paying rent, so I was floating mortgages out of the same savings. It was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And before I knew it, you know, I found myself, we foreclosed on a 6,000 square foot home in Southern California. And I ended up living in a 600 square foot apartment in Metairie, Louisiana. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. So obviously this is a significant low point. Mm-hmm. And obviously when you said resiliency is your superpower up to mm-hmm. this point, no doubt. So here you are at one of the lowest moments of your life. What's next? What was your first step to get out of this? Well, it, the defining moment for me came in that teeny tiny apartment in Metairie, Louisiana. You know, my husband Gerald had taken our daughter out and I was just looking in the mirror, Chris, just I just remember being like, God, why? Like what did I do? How did I get here? Like why, like how is this my reality? I'm a good person. I worked hard. I went to USC and was on the dean's list and got a business degree emphasizing entrepreneurial studies. I'm like, I had on paper, this is not supposed to happen. So I'm very confused about what's going on. And that talk with God turned into a full-blown bawling and snotting and crying and just, <laughs> God, why me? And it turned into sobbing on the floor on my knees with my forehead to the linoleum. Just God, come on, you got to tell me something. I've brought myself as far as I could bring myself. I don't know what else to do. You have to tell me what to do. And I felt a still small voice that told me to get my Bible. And I did. And I landed on a scripture, Proverbs 17, 16. And it said, what good is money in the hands of a fool if they had no desire to seek wisdom? Whoa. What did that make you think mm. in that moment? What was the wake up call in that moment? Ooh. First of all, I was like, is God legit calling me a fool? This is insulting, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I start thinking, wow, I have been really great at going after money. I grew up in, you know, not the best area, Lamar Park, Los Angeles, which was, you know, crime ridden and drug infested when I, as a kid in the 80s. And all I knew was I had to get out of there. So I grew myself to just, you know, chase education, which led to like chasing money. But there was never really a point where I learned to ask for help, where I learned to like seek wise counsel, Mm -hmm. where I sought out coaching or mentorship. I just didn't even understand that that was a thing. You know, when you don't know what you don't know. Sure. And I was used to figuring it out. I come from a Caribbean family where I was told, figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. And so that's how I lived my life, figuring it out. So even when I could have asked for help at different stages, of that year or so from the first time I felt the pressure of the recession starting, it never really dawned on me to open up and tell someone, this is where I am, this is what's going on, because I was used to being the one that people came to for help. And in that defining moment, in that moment, I felt that scripture saying, you have to stop thinking that chasing money is enough. You have to learn to seek wisdom. You have Mm -hmm. to learn to ask for help. You have to learn to go beyond what it is you think you've been able to do. That's not enough. And I made it. I made a pact with God. I said, if when I'm restored, I want my whole life to be about helping other people understand that this journey is not about chasing money. It's about seeking wisdom. And I literally got off that floor, and the next morning, I started a free blogspot.com, seekwisdomfindwealth.blogspot.com. I have not taken it down to this day. I don't even think I remember the email address or password to take it down at this point. But I never did because I always wanted to remember. I don't want people to see my site today and think I started there. I'm like, what got me off that floor was the idea that I could start this free blog spot and help one person. Mm. And that's turned into helping millions. So freaking good. Congratulations. Talk to me about your identity during this. How did your Mm. identity change from pre-recession to Mm post-recession? You know, I have to say, I can say honestly that I've been really consistent with how I saw myself. There like, th- there are times, as you know, that we get so caught up in identifying with what we do 
that we forget who we are. And I always had this strong sense of purpose. So even when I was doing what I was doing with real estate, I I knew that I had access to making tons of money, but there was still a lot of purpose behind it. And so one of the things I used to tell myself during that season is you lost all your money, but your mind isn't bad. Like you're still a good person and you still know what you know. You just have to figure out how to repackage this. And it was challenging at times, of course, because of my conversation. I went from being this kind of phenom kid starting this whole business during my senior year in college to, to you know, not having anything and, and feeling like a failure at times. But I just could, I never stayed in that. I never wallowed in it. I would let myself have a moment. I would let myself feel those emotions. I would let myself, you know, have that pity party of one. But I'm, I tell you the God's honest truth, that never lasted more than a day. Wow. And then I would be like, girl, so what now? What, like, what are you going to do? Because now you have a kid and it's not just about you. Mm-hmm. And Reagan didn't ask to be here. You brought her here. And so you need to be responsible for the quality of the life that she lives. And so figure it out. And so that figure it out that I got from childhood still was there. But I, w- I would, and I understand when, when you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure, but I just, I stayed really connected and um, with a church, with different churches as I moved about, and my faith just kept telling me that there's this is not happening to you; it's happening for you. You got to fight to see the blessing in this. Wow. You got to fight to see the good, and you have to learn to to like celebrate even the smallest things. And so, because I was like celebration of one, <laughs> like most, <laughs> you know, like or you know, and I have my husband there with me, but it was like. We learned to celebrate every little milestone, every little thing we learned to celebrate. And I believe staying in that place of gratitude is what allowed great things to keep kind of coming our way, even though they weren't major things. But it was stuff like I didn't have money at one point, Chris, to pay the light bill and the lights got turned off. And just the favor of going out and talking to the power man, I remember having Reagan on my hip. She was about one by then. And I had her on my hip and I went outside and I'm like, sir, if you keep these lights off, my baby won't have milk, you know? And and just the favor that people showed me at different steps along all of this was amazing. He's like, I don't, like, I could turn it back on, but if you don't get this paid in 48 hours, someone will be right back here to turn it off. and. But they, but no one ever came back, <laughs> right? So things like that would happen, and it was it was just a continuous kind of snowball of favor, if you will. Wow, you are resourceful and resilient. I love it. So let's fast forward to today. I mean, now mm-hmm. you're like one of the world's leading personal finance coaches, and mm. you're also a hope restoring coach. What is a hope restoring coach? Man, someone who is honest and transparent enough to. Not just share the highs, but also share the lows with you. Mm-hmm. And I've always been someone who was like, I can't just tell you about my mountaintop experiences. And it was tempting to do that when I first got into this whole space of transformation and wanting to help other people. It's like, well, who wants to listen to your valleys? You got to tell people about all your mountain peaks. And But I'm like, how does that really help people restore hope if they're in a valley? You don't want to hear about how amazing I've always been. You know, like I could skip through different seasons of my life and I would sound phenomenal. But the truth is your hope is restored when you hear the true experience of how people have overcome different obstacles. And so I'm very transparent, openly, but also with my clients. 
I love that. That's powerful. You have to be. I really believe that you have to be mm-hmm. in order to really reach people and crack them open. Why are you so passionate about this, though? Why is this such a thing for you? I don't think that I chose this. I literally feel that I was called to it. And, you know, I envy people sometimes who are so multi-passionate that they have a million things, <laughs> you know, that really light them up. But this is literally, I feel, the call on my life. Right. Like no one is in third grade going, you know what? I would love to be a personal finance coach when I grow up. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Right. Like it was not it was not on the bucket list. It was not a thought in my head. But because I did become passionate about financial education, you know, when I was helping with the real estate and mortgage stuff, helping my clients, everything that I went through just taught me deep levels of compassion. And I just feel called to it. I don't I don't know what else to say except for like, I literally feel that this is the call on my life and it's morphed and changed over time. But the core is the same that I just want to help people who feel hopeless when they experience any level of financial struggle. But now it's kind of, you know, it's fanned into so many different things, but that's the core. Like if I did it, I don't believe that God is any respected person. So if I did it, I just feel like I need to be on the mountaintops telling people like, if I did it, you can do it too. And by the way, here's my hand. Let me help you up. Mm, I love that. Well, we're going to tap into this God-given gift of yours here a little bit for the listeners. And my first question Mm -hmm. is this, as the best-selling author of the Real Money Answers series of books, and Mm -hmm. as the podcast host of of the top podcast, Redefining Wealth, what are the top three things that are holding people back financially right now? Mm, That's good. The top three things I would say that are holding people back financially are, first of all, just one, giving themselves permission to have more, be more, do more with finances. With a lot of people that that I come across, Chris, it's not that they're not brilliant enough to have the bank account balance they want. It's that, that they don't always believe that they deserve it for one reason or another. Um, a lot of it has to do with what was modeled for them growing up. It could be verbal influences, different things that you heard. You know, I grew up going to church eight days a week, 25 hours a day. Like, and I would hear the scripture all the time, um, misquoted, you know, money is the root of all evil. Yeah. And so then you have people who want money, but they're ashamed to say it because they don't want to come off as evil. Yep. Right. They want money, but they're scared to ask for it or charge what they're worth or any number of things. And so the first thing is giving yourself permission. I think the second thing is understanding that to truly build wealth, it's not just about money, right? Building wealth goes so much deeper than that. Becoming wealthy has 100% in my book, nothing to do with money and 100% everything to do with us and our mindsets towards money. And so once we give ourselves permission to receive you know, the money that I believe is our birthright, the other part of that is understanding that if we don't fulfill some different areas of our lives, we will continue to waste the money that does come into our life. So what do I mean by that? It's essentially many of us have voids, right? That are kind of opened up in childhood. Mm -hmm. Many of us are dealing with different childhood traumas that dictate how we run our lives today. And one example of that may be the relationships in your life. So when there is a void in, in the relationships in your life and you feel like you have to buy love or buy affection, or use money to impress folks or any number of things, right? You think, oh, it's a money issue, but really you have a people issue. Ooh, so good. 
right? You have a people issue. And that people issue really stems from you having a you issue. It's not even, it's not even the people because we could replace the people. You know, we can swap out their faces and names all day long. But you have an issue with how you feel about yourself and you're trying to fill the void by buying love and affection and that therefore impacts your money. And so it's not the money, it's you. (laughs) Like there's other things that you have to unpack there. And I think that too often we don't really look at that. We, We think that if I work harder or get another degree or get another certification or get the next raise or promotion, all my money problems will go away. And the truth is, you just keep taking you to each one of those new levels. Oh. And until you change you, nothing's gonna change. And that's a that's so that's a big piece. And then the third I would say is I think one that keeps people stuck is their inability to trust the process. So I hear a lot from people who don't trust financial advisors, they don't trust a financial planner, they barely trust their CPA, they don't trust the tax guy, they don't like they don't trust anyone, but yet you brought yourself as far as you could take yourself. And at some point you have to understand that you can't win at this game, you know, all by yourself. You are going to have to build a team of trusted advisors. That doesn't mean that you just work with the first person you meet. That's what we typically do when when something's hit the fan and you know our backs are up against the wall, but that you understand that you don't have to be, you know, a seven-figure earner in order to have a financial team. And it's important to have people to advise you because you're gifted at what you do. But this may not be your genius and everyone doesn't need to be a maven. I mean, I'm known as America's money maven and I have a team of people that help me. Like that, that is what it is. And I don't, I mean, one of my professors, I'm studying financial psychology right now. And one of my professors is not only a financial psychologist, he's like literally written the book on all this stuff. But he's also a financial planner and he still doesn't do his own. (laughs) (laughs) You do, you need that team, you need those coaches, right? You need people on your team. And so that, that comes from trusting the process. And I think, again, a lot of times when we don't trust the process, what we're really saying is we don't trust ourselves. Oh, so good. You said, first of all, your answers are some of the most original answers I've ever received to that type of question. So thank you for adding so much value. And you said Mm -hmm. one thing in there. That I want to make sure everybody caught. And you said, if we don't fulfill our voids in life, we'll continue to waste our money filling them. That is the mm-hmm. most eye-opening statement. I've seen that in my past. And mm-hmm. I see that in friends. And I see that in family. And I see that in clients and acquaintances. That is one of the most eye-opening answers ever. Now, I just wanted to make sure everybody caught that. <laughs> so you say you're committed to redefining the term wealth. And this mm-hmm. has come up a couple of times. How should it be defined? Well, and it's funny because... What I consider to be wealth is actually the original definition of wealth. So when most people think of wealth, Chris, they think of money and material possessions. We think of an abundance of assets, right? If you ask anyone, oh, tell me about a wealthy person you know, what are the characteristics? They're going to start to go into, oh, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of cars, a big house, a yacht, a jet, or, you know, all these things. Especially living around here, right? (laughs) Right, right. But when you look at the original definition, and this is what I love, it's buried. And, and that's why seeking wisdom is so important to me. And all my social media handles are seek wisdom. It's that reminder to never take what's just on surface. You know what's on the surface and go deeper. When you look up wealth, the first definition you'll probably see if you Google it right now is money and material possessions. But if you keep digging and get down to that seventh or eighth definition, you're finally going to see the 12th century definition, which says, the condition of well-being. And 
for so long, so many personal finance experts and different people who I love, they have paved the way for me. But I feel that they have made such an emphasis on budgets and credits and investing and um, and you know debt elimination and savings accumulation and all these things. But we forget to tell people that there needs to be a well-being aspect here as well, that you can do all of those things and you can still end up in a financial conundrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you can still end up in some place that you don't want to be. And when I say redefining wealth, for me, it's really taking you back to what the real definition of wealth was in the 12th century. It's just redefining it for my generation because we just live in a time of hustle and grind and the team no sleep and Instagram. do whatever it takes and <laughs> Instagram fame and instant fame and all these things. But then we still see, and, and there's so much research that shows, um, psychologists talk about this all the time, that we are some of the most unhappiest people. Yeah, We are some of the loneliest people. And I think what we forget or what we think is that money is going to solve all things and it's not. And the way to lose it is to not be fulfilled in other areas because, again, you begin to self-sabotage when you're not fulfilled in other areas. So in my work, I teach people what those other areas look like. So how do we... Because you always say chase purpose, not money. How do we know for chasing purpose and not money, especially for money motivated? Oh, that's a good question. How do we know when we're chasing purpose? I believe you know when you start to make decisions based on what actually feels good. First, right, the impact and then the income. Mm. If every decision is first income and then secondary, we'll think about impact, then you're probably chasing money. And the thing is, chasing money, you know, we, I don't know about you and, and how you grew up, but I grew up where the whole thing was you go to school, you get good grades so you could get to college and then you get a great job, right? There was no talk of like taking care of myself or how I treated other people, you know, loosely, but it wasn't the same pounding yep. in your head as it as the other steps were, right? Totally. And so even in a in a in a way, that was the the catalyst for me chasing money because I also grew up in the hood and I knew that I didn't want to live in the hood forever. So the way to go to USC and then not return to to such a neighborhood was to make money, was to have money, was to get out of that. So I made, you know, getting to the next level, the bigger, the better, the more, the more, the more, the thing, right? So that I didn't have to go back to where I came from. So I wouldn't have to raise children in the same type of type of environment that I was raised in. Mm. And while that's a noble, that might appear noble, it became like everything. It it consumed me. So I worked ridiculous hours. I did not have the life a young 20-something-year-old should have. Mm-hmm. I started my business at 21. And I mean, in my head, I was 50. In my head, I needed <laughs> to like retire. You know, I was so much older than I was. I didn't necessarily understand enjoying life. I didn't necessarily pour into my friendships the way I would have liked at that time. I didn't, I travel, but I didn't really enjoy seeing the world the way I could have. There were so many other things. I was a hoarder of money. Mm. I really was. And, but it was, it was also applauded. It was applauded. So I kept doing it. And then I kept getting certifications and then I kept getting licenses and then I kept doing things. And I became obsessed with achievement and not necessarily with contribution. Wow. Wow, that's so eye-opening. You know, I'm going to use your words. You said you grew mm-hmm. up in the hood. 
Mm-hmm. And now obviously you live a very privileged life and you're raising mm-hmm. your family in a very privileged way. What advice do you have for somebody who's growing up right now the same way you grew up? To have goals and to be committed to the vision for your life, but not to be so attached to how you get there. To not force it and make it, it, it has to look this way, it has to be this way. Um, because I was very inflexible when mm-hmm. I was younger. And I think that's a part of why everything hit me as hard as it did. Because I just could not imagine doing things differently than what I had laid out. Mm. And, you know, they say God laughs at your plans. Like, and today, you know, I'm still a planner, but I'm much more flexible with it. And again, my focus has shifted from, you know, income first to being impact first. And I think that doing that has just led me down some really beautiful relationships and conversations and environments that make me wealthy because I'm rich in like friendships, you know, like I'm rich in like so many different areas um, as well as being financially secure. But that's not the leading thing for me anymore. It's not to say that obviously I'm running a business, right? (laughs) Like, and it's a profitable business, but I start my goals by, by impact, by how many people I want to reach, how many people I want to touch, how many people I want to have a chance to speak to, you know, this year, how many interviews would I like to do this year? Like I start with the numbers based on impact and not just the money numbers. And I know that when you're in a position, maybe where things are tight or you're struggling a bit, that it seems odd to do that. But I can honestly say on my rebuilds, you know, during this whole process of restoration, that's, that's exactly what I've done. And, and I've been able to achieve both. That is so good, Patrice. I love that advice. So a couple more questions before mm-hmm. we wrap up here. What role has generosity played in your success specifically? Oh my gosh. I think that it has completely attributed to, to who I am and what I've been able to do in my work over these last several years. I think that it's it's a cycle, right? Like it's reciprocal. So giving and receiving just kind of go hand in hand. And I had to do a lot of work, Chris, honestly, around receiving. Like I was not a good receiver of help, of information, of anything. Me (laughs) too. I know the feeling. Like I went through a season of that. And again, not because I was so arrogant, but I think you just don't know what you don't know. So then sometimes when people would offer things, I would think like, well, what string is attached to that? Like, what are they, what is that for? What are they, what are they going to want from me? What is, you know, I was, I grew up very skeptical of things like that. And so the more I learned to, to give freely and I knew that I was doing it from a genuine place, then the more I've been able to receive freely. And it's such a different feeling. My husband and I, even at our lowest, we've always practiced generosity. I mean, it could be anything from making small donations, but really of our time of thing. I mean, I've had people come up to me and thank me literally years later for giving them a washer and dryer. And I don't even remember, right? Because I, it's no strings attached in my mind. So I'm not thinking anything of it at the time, except for like, oh, this might be a blessing to you. You don't have this. Well, I have one in storage. Why would I let it sit in storage and I could give it to you? Mm. Or you need this. I don't. And so it's just so much a part of who we are that I don't, it's not anything you even keep track of personally. Like it's just whether it's volunteering at things or donating time or actually donating things or donating books or, you know, actually sewing into people's 
businesses. I mean, I support businesses where I don't even necessarily need what they have. Yep. But but it's a small business, especially um, if it's a woman led business and they're just getting started. Like, I'll buy your first kit or I'll <laughs> buy your first whatever. And then I just bless someone else with it if it's not something that I need. But I see it come back to me in so many different ways. One of the things I talk about the podcast is um, the people pillar and creating relationships that matter. And I always tell people there's always someone watching you who has the power to bless you, but who are they watching you be? Ooh. Right? Like, who are they watching you be? How are they watching you behave? And so many of the blessings that I have received in different forms, whether that be the opportunity for my book deal or speaking at an event or getting invited on wonderful podcasts like yours, it really has come from people seeing other things that I did and I wasn't even paying attention to them watching like because I wasn't doing it for that. That is powerful. That is really powerful. Where do we find your podcast? And even further, what's your favorite episode? The first one people should listen to. Oh, I would say the episode, Give God Something to Bless. The, the podcast is Redefining Wealth. You can find it on my site, of course, patricewashington.com or in your favorite podcast player, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeart, and everything else. But Give God Something to Bless is my favorite because it just speaks to um, this idea that a lot of us have a lot of things that we talk about, Chris. But again, we do, we're do we not necessarily doing anything. We just kind of like talking or hoping or praying or wishing about it. It's this idea that God knows what you're waiting on when he sees what you're working on. Mm, I love that. I got a right? flight later today, so I'm going to make sure I listen to it on my flight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good one. I think it's really... I keep getting people's feedback on Instagram and they're like, woo, stepping on toes. That hurt. <laughs> I know, like I it though. You've to got to, you've got to step on some toes to get your message across. You just mentioned yeah. Instagram. How do we follow you on Instagram? Seek wisdom, PCW. Seek wisdom on PCW. That's on Instagram and Twitter. Mm, guys, make sure you go follow Patrice. She is so freaking awesome. I'm not uh, kidding. Go tune in. couple more questions. We're going to put a bow on this thing. Mm-hmm. I always ask this question of everybody in order to really inspire new ways of giving. And mm-hmm. So here we go. What is one of your all-time favorite moments of giving? I would have to say, selfishly, I think, but I would have to say last year, I gave my mom an apartment. Like I gave my mom an apartment complex. I That's gave her a awesome. That's not and, selfish. And I say, and, and the thing that really gets me about this one, Chris, is because to this day, it's about a year ago now that she moved in, bought a place, totally gutted it, rehabbed it, fully furnished. And my mom had no idea. She knew I bought the place as an investment property. She had no idea that I was going to give it to her, that Gerald and I were going to bless her with it. And so we finally invited her over to come check it out. And we gave her the keys. And it, it's the place that she's retiring to. And my mom never had a washer and dryer. She's never had a dishwasher. She's never had a garbage disposal. She never had a second bathroom. She's never had so many of the things that we put in this place. And to see someone at 65 years old light up because they've just never, she never had her own garage. She, my whole life, my mom has lived in apartments. She came here from Belize and um, in Central America and has worked really hard and always lived in really small apartments, two bedroom, one path apartments and older buildings and just never had some of these things. And to, to talk to her just the other day and she says, 
I hear the like, you know, dryer goes off and she's like, hold on, I was doing laundry. Let me get pulled out the dryer. So good. And to be able to grow up and, and be a blessing to her and have a oh. husband that would, you know, be on like, board. I mean, be on board and go overboard. I was pulling him back on some stuff like, hey, this is good. <laughs> you know, it's just a blessing. And that that is my number one. Seeing my mom's face when she realized that place was hers. I will never forget that. I cannot imagine how good that felt. I mean, I cannot. 11 out of 10 goosebumps feeling, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So good. Very last question. Ask everyone this question. The diversity of answers is awesome. Why should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of success? Because it's their birthright. It's their birthright. I just feel that we were all born with a gift of talent and skill, something that we're supposed to use to produce wealth. And when we look at the diversity of how awesome we are in so many different ways, like how could you not? Like how could you not want to to put that thing out there in the world and use it to inspire and encourage and motivate and empower others in some form or fashion? It's your birthright. And you know it's your birthright because you were born with it. Mm, that is so empowering and so spot on. Patrice, I can't thank you enough. I mean, your answers are original. Your answers add so much value. The stories you told had so much vulnerability. When somebody asked me the question I asked you, and what is one of your favorite episodes, this will hands down be one of my favorite episodes. Oh, thank you. Oh, man. cannot thank you enough for coming on. And on behalf of all the listeners, just the biggest hug and the biggest thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.